Welcome to the Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Dillon Media. Thank you, Yola Tango, as always. We have a bunch of things going on today. We're going to do a new segment called Approval Matrix. Uh-huh. We're going to talk a little bit about Slice of Life. We're going to do a little bit about cultured meats, a little bit about the bear, and then we're going to get into an interview with MJ uh, of Meyer Labs. Um, yeah, so got a full dance card. Full, full dance card. So my, I'm I'm friends with Kevin Sistrom. Uh, he created a newsreader AI thing that if I was in Silicon Valley, I'd be able to describe better. So sorry, Kevin, if I butchered that. But it's called Artifact, and <laughs> I get fed a lot of. My algorithm is really sports, doomsday <laughs> scenarios, and now recipes. <laughs> uh-huh. And I get, I ran across this article that I found to be extremely funny. What are your thoughts on? Is this something that's going to become a trend? Is this something we anticipate coming? Because this article certainly did. It was in Life Hacker. Never really read Life Hacker. That canelling is going to be a thing at all. Home canelling? Do you want to explain what a canal is? A canal is a very specific way of presenting a what, what like a, a a creamy or like whipped cream, ice cream. You would use two spoons to produce a kind of what is that shape called? Is there a, it's a, it's a little somewhere between a it's a pointy egg. Yeah, it's a pointy egg shape. Yeah, when you go see a traditional French plating, specifically of desserts or something, anytime you have something like ice cream texture, it's going to be presented in a canal, or whipped cream, or creme fraiche. Let me tell you, this is encouraging the home cook to canal at home. You should not listen to this journalist writer. I'm not trying to disparage. I just think it's a horrible idea. <laughs> well. Is the only people that should learn how to do it are aspiring professional cooks. Mm-hmm. If I went to someone's house, if I came to your house and uh, you're like, "Hey, I, I made just, just if you did this, I made Harry's berries uh, strawberry ice cream in homage to our good friend Chris Chen," <laughs> and you made this beautiful ice cream and you served it in a canal, I would walk out of the house. <laughs> big. Or I would be like, you are um, a replicant of Chris Ying. Where is the real Chris Ying? That, that's what you would react if it were me. If you walked into another stranger's house and they presented this, this homemade ice cream in a canal, the real sentiment is like, what kind of poser are you? <laughs> this is outrageous poser behavior. It's ridiculous. I mean, this is where I feel like what is practical, which is why I dislike this article so much. I'd rather people know how to canal, but don't encourage people to practice because you can't practice it with just words. Canaling takes time. And some people are better than others. I haven't canaled in a long time. Mm-hmm. If I try to do it, it might take me some time to get back to my canaling days because like most things, uh, it's not like riding a bike. If you don't practice this every day, Hey, you know, I used to be a black belt in karate, taekwondo, I mean, Have when I was a pra- kid. You've been practicing? Uh, I'm still a black belt. <laughs> I was like, do a roundhouse kick right now. <laughs> yeah, I can still do it in my mind, my mind's eye. 
Wait, is there is there a functional reason for the canal, or is it purely aesthetic? Aesthetic, and it's a beautiful thing, and it's a great technique. But again, like these are things that don't translate. And again, getting people to learn more about a canal, I get it. But to practice it at home, you are going to waste an awful lot of ice cream. There's no way. And if you do do it, just buy one of the cheaper tubs of ice cream. And a lot of it is finding the canister and the container or the bowl that allow you to do it. Also, what this article doesn't explain is finding that right temperature that allows you to canal properly. Guess what? You ain't going to learn that from reading a, a book. Right. You can't canal a rock-solid tub of ice cream out of your freezer. Nope. <laughs> and the water can be hot, but not too hot for the bain-marie, for the spoons. Um, and canaling, say, a whipped cream or sour cream that's been whipped and aerated is very different, very, very different than doing ice cream. Ice cream is very different than gelato. Ice cream is very different than sorbet. But the, the motion is the same. And it really, it is like this. It's a, you know, you do, you see a lot of that because you're trying to get that smooth base and then it's like in and out. It's almost like, it's, like, almost, it's like a fly fishing. It's almost like a, a jab. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're kind of, you're kind of pushing and then pulling quickly yeah. back toward you. What did this yeah. article? Why would canelling become a thing? Because that, you're seeing it. Uh, we'll, we'll reference it a little bit. You see it on the bear. I, I think people are now bored. There's nothing else to talk about. And the funny thing is, we've talked about plating for quite a bit uh, over the stretch of this podcast uh, in the years we've done it. And I would say 2015, 2016, you got you, you started to see the evolution of plating. Hmm. And you can see the evolution of plating on how people plate desserts and ice cream more than the savory. And from 2000 to 2015, it was the dominance. It was like, you know, British dominance in the like 1600s. Everything's a canal. Mm-hmm. Everything's a goddamn canal. Mm-hmm. Anything that can be canaled will be canaled. Right. It was like... Big canals and little canals yeah, on the same place. If it's duck pate, canal. Canal. Everything's a fucking canal. <laughs> duck cellar mushrooms. If you turn that canal, canal that shit. And we're not talking about the, the two spoon method, mm-hmm. right? Mm-mm. No, that, that doesn't have any street cred, Mm-mm. right? Where you take two spoons and you mold it together. Um, and right around 2015, I feel like you started to see the, the end of the canal and the return of the scoop. I haven't seen a canal for a while, to be honest with you. <laughs> and that's what's so funny is like, that's how out of touch people in, writing about food are, that canals are in vogue. Actually, they're not in vogue anymore, and they haven't been since 2015. That was the decline. Mm-hmm. And over the years, you saw the canal change shape. So you, saw, you would see a canal with shit poured over it. Mm-hmm. You would see a canal that was smashed a little bit. You would see stuff crumbled on, under the canal. Um, those are always good because it's like getting a Carvel ice cream cake. Mm-hmm. Crunchies. Um, crunchies. You would also um, see the slow evolution into the scoop again. And then it was the scoop. And it, the smashed, when we started seeing the smashed canal of ice cream, like a little indent into the canal, that was the sign, like the bat signal to everybody. It's like, we can, we can come back to ice cream scoops, folks. <laughs> We've taken this to the fucking furthest edges of of ice cream scooping possible. Everyone saw. We didn't know. I never spoke to another chef. It was all intuitive. It was like, it's time to bring them back to ice cream. <laughs> but, but, but we knew. We, we knew. knew. So because like you wanted to recreate that rustic out of the, you know, Baskin Robbins scoop and make it seem like 
And then that right. started to evolve. And then that same shit you did at Canal started to happen to the ice cream scoop. Different presentations, different indentations, different smashes and smushes into it. And now we have a whole, you know, we have an audience now. It's like, oh, I'm going to practice canaling at home because that's what they do in restaurants. <laughs> the idea of practicing canaling at home is, is just true. I used insane. to do it. But you did it because you wanted to go back to work because you had to. Because I out. would be fired. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you would just like sit there on the couch with a tub of whatever and just. And these are other things. Out. When like a journalist that clearly has never worked in a professional kitchen is giving advice. I don't know if she, she could have formerly been or he. I'm not sure. I don't want to assume that they maybe worked in a professional kitchen, but it doesn't seem like to me. So much of canelling isn't just the Ben Marie or the type of substance that you're trying to make the canal, the shape. It is the spoon itself. Mm-hmm. You need to have a right canelling spoon. And those are, yeah, you can canal with anything, but for someone that does it all the time, that's like, well, so what, that's like your rifle if you're in the Marines. What I don't like about this, especially, and, and to your point of like, you need a specific spoon, you need tons of practice, you need perfect conditions. What I hate about this advice is that <laughs> you will never make a great canal at home. Well, you can. I'm sure you can. But, but you, it's but not you about won't. doing it once. Uh, I just, that, that we're, we're running out of things to, to write about. Instead, I would rather write about who's the greatest caneller of all time. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you right now, in my opinion, it's Jockey. Mm-hmm. Jockey used to be the pastry chef at the uh, Fat Duck. He also was part of the, the really famous research and development team. Um, that Kyle Connaughton of now Single Thread and uh, Chris, oh my God, Chris, who helped write um, uh, Modernist Cuisine. And now he has Chef Steps, oh starts Chef God. Steps, and now he's doing the thermometer. Great guy, great chef, extremely smart. Uh, but Jockey used to work at uh, the In a Little Washington and wound up in the Fat Duck and Bray of UK. I don't know where Jockey is. He's one of my favorite people. I haven't seen him in quite some time. I've seen that dude, Connell. Wow. Wow. That's, that's what we should be writing about. What, you want to watch the greatest of all time, maybe, in the pantheon of greatest canelling? That mm-hmm. guy, two hands. <laughs> like, without even looking. <laughs> I think he did 100 canals, both hands, in like 45 seconds. That's two. <laughs> I swear to God. Being ambidextrous canelling is outrageous. <laughs> but the way he does it's like, it's not even like a jab. It's, it's like, he's 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 uh, speaking in. Uh, he's making a magic spell happen. It's like he's he's willing it to come out of the ice cream onto a spoon. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing. And you would have uh, I remember canelling competitions, and and there are there are people that are much faster than me at mm-hmm. canelling. Mm-hmm. Not my strength. But um, I think having a canelling spoon, I used to like a longer, longer handle with a deep cup. But, a, you know, because mm-hmm. like if, that will assist you. So if you are industrious enough to try to impress your partner because things are that bad in your relationship <laughs> <laughs> that you got to be like, hey, maybe she'll love me more. Maybe he'll love me more if I show him my canelling. Skill. I mean, who knows? Maybe there'll be a follow. Canelling saved my relationship. Yeah. Who knows? Canelling saved yeah. my marriage. Dear Abby, can canelling save my marriage? Um, <laughs> you want to practice with a good spoon. Find your spoon. Mm-hmm. When you're good at it, I have to imagine I'm not good at it. It is satisfying to be able to. Yeah, because you, you're a fucking sorcerer. <laughs> 
the, the, the canal, I mean, I'm not against. If I think we lived it, in a world of magic, you'd be like, yeah, be Gandalf. Go, go for it. That's, that's what this article is saying. Yeah. You have the magic in you. You're fucking Harry Potter. Everyone can be Harry Potter. I mean, no, you can't. They are they, uh, a canal. <laughs> this is, I, I'm against the home canaling. A canal is a beautiful thing. It does look very beautiful. Perfectly so, smooth. So I think canal is on its ascendancy into nowhere in culture. <laughs> it is really going nowhere. I mean, that article makes is, is just truly nonsensical. Um, also, in, in this week's approval matrix, shout out to Donnie Media of, of, uh, of uh, Paul Kahan and the great restaurant group that is fucking eluding me in Chicago. What is it called? With Blackbird and the Blackbird. Is I think it's the Blackbird Group, is and they have Big Star. They have a Vec. I love them very much. Two of the best individuals in the whole goddamn business. I was watching Bear. I I, I just was on Bill Simmons' podcast talking about episode ten. I have not seen the entire season. I just watched. You know, I will get to it all. But Donnie's in there in episode ten as a guest in the friends and family. So shout out to Donnie for making it. There's a, he's in the, a oh, great he's guest. In, the, in the, like the third table that he visits. Yeah. That's right. With uh, John Mulaney and Jamie Lee Curtis. That's some pretty, uh, Donnie. You made it, man. And, uh, again, shout out to Maddie Matheson. Unbelievably good. Fuck you, Maddie. <laughs> it's unbelievably good. He's just he's so Canadian. natural. It's because he's goddamn Canadian. They do have a, they do have a gift. You know, he's funny as hell too. Maddie. He's so good at acting. He is the best chef actor by far. Yeah. I mean, who's second though? Mm. Okay. I understand that that might not sound like the highest compliment, <laughs> but it is. <laughs> I was going to say like, are, you might be second. <laughs> no, I'm the reason why Treme got canceled. <laughs> sure, sure, yeah. sure. Maddie really is a terrific actor. And I was just, he's a great chef. Great restaurateur, has wonderful restaurants that people enjoy tremendously in Toronto. And he's got a YouTube presence, all these things. One of the most affable, most lovable people in our business. As great as he is, I think he's a better fucking actor. He's fucking very good. He's so good. He's very good. Like you couldn't have cast a better person to play that role. No, but the funny thing is, I think if Maddie had to play as a chef, may not be as good. <laughs> yeah. Because he's too much in it, but the fact that he can play something else that's mm-hmm. in you know adjacent to the, the 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 food restaurant world, he knocked it out of the park. So, but really, Donnie making it as a if you don't know, that's one of the goats in Chicago in the country, running one of the best restaurant groups in the world, and that's that's like a cool nod to Chicago, right? And he, someone like Donnie, would be at a friends and family. Yes, hundred percent, right. Hey, Chris Storer could have invited me. <laughs> I do. I do think about that sometimes. Thanks Chris a Storer, lot. You you know us. Thanks a lot, Courtney. <laughs> Thanks for the call. Oh, John Mulaney can play a you know your dead brother's cousin. Could have been adopted. Could have been me. <laughs> I mean, Korean adoption is a real is it was a, yeah, a big thing. Real, just, real big thing. So, uh, I think that the the guest stars in that series are good though. It was really really terrific. I think as great as the first season was, and as difficult it was to watch. Uh, they really did a remarkable job. I, I've seen three episodes. I've seen the, the episode that Rami directed with Marcus in Copenhagen. And it's good to see our old stomping grounds of Copenhagen. It's a city that Chris and I know extremely well. We're, we're you know, we joke, no more Fuku. Um, 
Yeah, there's things that are not exact, mm-hmm. right? But I think it's closer than anything else that has ever been out there. And episode 10 is the best iteration of what it's like to be in the weeds in a kitchen, whether it's opening mm-hmm. day or not. I think that, yeah, I mean, to be perfectly frank, I had resisted watching it for quite a while for mostly out of jealousy <laughs> that Chris Dorr made this, this very smart series. I think about, I think you're right. It's not a hundred percent. It's not a documentary about a kitchen, but I will say in the same way that poetry just evokes a feeling or a song can evoke a feeling without being exactly your situation. When I watch the bear, it evokes the right feeling. And and this is what I want to say. And then we'll move on to the next part of the segment. As much as they nail and gotten better at nailing the stories that happen in restaurants, the idiosyncratic routines that people have, the just the little handoffs of information, right? It's it's or just the way a perspective from the camera is shot of how someone might look at something, like how car might look at an ingredient or something that's going wrong. I think what they nail, even though um, I haven't lived exactly like that, or, or or a lot of people, I think. This what I've seen this season. They nailed the human relationship aspects. Yeah. Um, and again, it's it's a it's a real dichotomy of high and low and love and hate, and that can be for everybody, and including the people that are closest to you. Um, so I, I just thought that was extremely well done, and uh, I hope that doesn't get lost because I know that everyone's going to talk about the food and the restaurant, etc. And what they were able to capture. But I think that what is most real is the human relations and the connections that happen out of those restaurants, those, those environments. So, uh, again, good, good job on, on you guys. Uh, I'm really proud of them. Uh, I think it's amazing. And, uh, you know, it's been like five years since Tony died. I guarantee if Tony was alive, and I, I, I mentioned this to Courtney, um, he would be like, this is the fucking, he would be, Forcing everybody to watch this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, good job on you guys. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit-free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. I went fishing last week. Uh, with the family, uh, we were in Idaho, um, and uh, we don't know if we're going to do that again with the kids in one room. That was very difficult. But one thing that we were able to do um, is make s'mores. Ah. Uh, I'm going to, listen, I got a lot of hate for uh, making fun of grilled burgers. <laughs> and of course, Australia takes it way too far. Start uh, writing articles about it. Um, 
because uh, they can't help but know that what I'm saying is true. <laughs> and I, I love the hyperbole. He hates the grill. <laughs> he wants to abolish the grill and all burgers. And he can only be cooked inside. I didn't say cook it and fucking inside. I said cook it on a fucking griddle. <laughs> I saw this too. I saw a bunch of people who who <laughs> took what you said, what we talked about on the show of grilled burgers are a lie. And then the headlines, even just the tweets from people who, who agreed, became, Dave Chang hates grills. <laughs> That's patently untrue. And I hate your grandmother. <laughs> what is, I mean, hates grills. I know, it's ridiculous. Anyway. <laughs> and this fucking chef in Australia. I mean, him and what's his face? The guy that has hair that looks like it's never been washed. Um, Shannon, Shannon Bennett. <laughs> that fucking guy. Um <laughs> That said, fucking guy. Said what? Um, yeah, they're just like, so pissed about my burger. Listen, let me quadruple down on this. <laughs> I, it, let me just make this official. I love Australia. I lived there for almost two years. I love all aspects of Australia, except the racism. <laughs> it's pretty racist sometimes. <laughs> Don't you, are you going to tell me that's not no, true? No, no, no. Oh, there's listen. racism everywhere, but there's a Killer brand of racism the in Australia. The beaches are wonderful. The yeah. food is wonderful. I um, can do without the racism. <laughs> and the fucking no ozone layer. You're going to burn in two <laughs> seconds. So if you're going to Australia, you better lather on a hundred fucking proof because you will melt. Right. And it better be white. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Zinc everywhere. Anyway, let me quadruple down on this. Without, can, if, if it's possible, can you hold Australia two things simultaneously with one of them being extremely contradictory? I love Australia. Mm-hmm. I also love grilling. But let me make this very clear so it's not taken out of context. Your fucking hamburgers are garbage. And now I found like, I really sound like a Skip Bayless right now. I mean, maybe I was born to be like Skip Bayless. There, <laughs> there is a stay in your lane aspect here. Where the worst food ever invented was the Australian version of the hamburger. How about that? Just Print that. We've octuple <laughs> down on this take. This take. Oh, my God. I mean... Oh, it's simply this. Australian burgers are great. Just leave out the fucking egg and take out the beetroot. And if you're going to call it beetroot, don't call it beetroot. Just say it's fucking beets. Why, why, why is beetroot? I mean, you should probably take that uh, Canadian bacon out of there, too. I don't want that in Streaky there bacon. Yeah. The one thing that Australia does... And we'll get back to the approval matrix, I promise you. Really well. Just blows my mind that it's not taken off around the world. It's not hand pies, meat pies, which is a whole nother fucking mm-hmm. thing. It's delicious. And it's not their amazing junk food. Because we will do this World Cup of Snacks. And I promise you, Australia will make it to the semifinals. Australia is really the... Um, uh, oh my God. What country is Messi from? Argentina. Argentina of snacks. <laughs> they put chicken salt on their French fries. Mm-hmm. And that might be the single greatest culinary contribution that has yet to take off in the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. See, Australia, I love you. You should shut up about burgers, though, Australia. I don't know why you're talking about burgers. It is crazy. It's, it's totally crazy. I, I, don't, I don't talk about ballroom dancing. <laughs> Like, I mean, and yes, did I say Wagyu makes stupid burgers? I did, but not the crossbreed stuff that you can get. It's fine. You know why I'm okay with that? Because it's almost 65, 70% um, lean to fat ratio, which is what you want in a burger. I think what is stupid is to take the best in class 
cows raised in Japan. Grind them and up. Grind them up <laughs> and turn them into a McDonald's patty. That I think is fucking stupid. Where you're just going to render so all the fat out of them. Make sure that wasn't taken out of context. All right? Motherfuckers. Um, <laughs> all right. I'm never, I'm going to never. The, uh, the Aussie burger is not high on the approval matrix. Again. I, lo- I love Australia. I, I miss Australia. Burgers are bad. <laughs> Burgers are terrible. Really, really bad. Really, French fries. <laughs> Drinking. Is Australia, Sports are, and betting. Is Australia mad because they're so closely associated with the, the grill? With the grilling and chilling? I don't know. The Barbie? I don't know. But they have funny. They have a different. I like the Australian grill. Let's mm. be honest here. Like, people may not know what it is. It's like a, it's like a mini desktop Weber grill that's shaped in a circle square like thing but it's a griddle and it has a small grill attachment like half and half mm-hmm. what's great is you can cook a lot of different things on it and this is the this is the prototypical go to the park set your little yeah, grill right. up and do your thing yeah yeah see you can hold two thoughts at the same time love australia shut up about the burgers <laughs> <laughs> just to remind yourself there's so many things from australia that have taken over and you know kylie minogue great, great example Becomes a viral sensation and people love Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue was the first yeah. place you yeah. went. Okay. Yeah. And that that other, Natalie Imbruglia, another Is one. Natalie Imbruglia? Australia. Yeah, she was on like the Aussie version of Friends. Things can happen and the world can find out about it. I'm just saying like, how much longer do you have to hold out hope that the world will embrace beets <laughs> on a burger? <laughs> never give up. This, on, this, on this point, I actually say never give up. Don't change all right, so we got Canel going both ways, up and down simultaneously. Canel ascending into nothingness. We have the bear headed towards just cultural dominance. Yeah. Right? It is going to, you're going to see photo shoots. You're going to see a whole plethora of fucking bear-like costumes this stupid ha- Halloween. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's, 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 it's. it's it is not niche at all. It is, man. And most importantly, you're going to see some really bad culinary scripted knockoffs. Maybe one of them might be pitched by Chris and myself. <laughs> and s'mores, going back to s'mores. Sorry, I got way off, off topic. You're not a surprise. I haven't made a s'more in a long time. When was the last time you think you had a s'more? When would you have had a s'more? I don't even know. It's been years. I, I definitely have had it in the past, you know, many times in my life. Mm-hmm. But it's... It, Maybe it's the first time where I've been sober and looked at it and made it with my children. And they even had s'more uh, uh, iron sticks, right? Mm-hmm. Prongs. You can put the marshmallow on. I, I, maybe I didn't get the lesson on how to make s'mores. Okay. Can I? I, I find that it's a horror. Uh, 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 it's going to make some people mad. I think it's a. It's not a good idea. It's better in an ice cream cup as a s'more flavor than a thing because this is why. And I know we have a guest coming on and I knew I promised Slice and we're going we're gonna to talk about that after MJ uh, is done. I think the s'more has a faulty foundation in its idea and construction. It's a bad idea. I think... A great um, idea on paper. I think really literally... The graham cracker foundation is not a good foundation. It's so stupid to have a... When's the last time you pulled out a graham cracker on a camping trip and you had it whole? 
Mm-hmm. You always get a corner piece or something that's broken in half. You can't even get it out of the bag hole. What makes you think it's going to hold up to sandwich? At least put it in a somebody that makes graham crackers. Put it in like a a, a pretzel, a, 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 you know, one of those Pringles containers. So it does, it's protected. <laughs> so let me get this right. I I personally have I think the the combination of chocolate toasted marshmallow and graham cracker nice delicious I think that as a thing that you can eat it is is not true it's like saying it's like serving soup in your hand you can't it's just not the so proper one, vessel one the, the 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 sandwich element of the graham cracker faulty I love graham crackers but we need to find a way to ensure that when you are going to make one in the wild that mm. it's going to be whole two. If you happen to be one of those lucky few that actually has an intact graham cracker, how do you construct it where it doesn't break, right? When you are putting it together. The other part is, I think there's a lot of debate on how toasty you want your marshmallow. I got mine brulee, very different. Brulee, very different than fucking burnt. Burnt is very different than charred. I made mine brulee slash charred. Everyone's like, oh. You fucking burn. You're a chef and you burn your marshmallow. <laughs> Wait, so how, okay. How long? You know what it's like? Did you hold your You know what I over? felt like? They don't know how to s- pronounce continuity. <laughs> <laughs> They're making fun of you. <laughs> yeah. That's what it felt like. That is a brutal moment. You're like, no, I'm th- this is the right way to do it's, it. It's brulee. It's nice and charred. I'm going to get a little bit of the bitterness from the smoke. It's what you want. Can I also say, we need salt. You need fucking salt with this uh, uh, s'more. It's not there. We should have some Florida cell. Uh, <laughs> so here's the thing. So you char it. Then what do you do? So if you have the marshmallows, how do you take it off? You, you sandwich it on. How do you take the mar- marshmallow off the stick? Well, I have a whole process. So for, I actually think that one of the reasons why the graham cracker doesn't work is because people just break off their chocolate straight out of the bar and then put it on onto the graham cracker. I have to break off my chocolate, put it onto my graham cracker, then set my graham cracker near the fire as I am toasting my marshmallow so that that chocolate becomes at least pliable. Then, great. You got to the third, you know, fallibility the chocolate. Oh, the chocolate. Can the I chocolate, use cold chocolate, man? Who the fuck had thought it was a good idea to take cold? I mean, you have to melt that goddamn thing. Yeah, and if you chocolate. don't get it hot enough, you don't char your marshmallow enough. It is not thermodynamics. Don't work that way. It's not no going to get fucking melty. But yes, you you identified the proper method, which is to sandwich and then pull. Sandwich and pull, but it doesn't work with cold chocolate. It doesn't work with cold chocolate. It actually doesn't taste good with cold chocolate. Right. So guess what? I'm in a group of, say, 15 people. 15 adults with their fucking children. Uh-huh, They're all laughing at chocolate. me. <laughs> They're all laughing at me because you know what I fucking did? I found the two pieces of unbroken fucking graham cracker. I take the skewer, the devil's fork. Right. The devil's you know, fork. My, 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 my allegiance to the devil is very strong. <laughs> you, just, you just had one. And I put two marshmallows in each prong. So six total. Oh, you the surface three area. Pronged. Yeah. Yeah. You did a six? Six marshmallow s'more. <laughs> oh my God. So it's like a pitchfork. Two on each fork. Each tine. Tine. Whatever. I just learned that's the word today. <laughs> I'd always pronounce it tine. 
And then, because now it's like yay big, right? Okay. It's like the size of this phone. So I marshmallow, marshmallow, marshmallow. And I put the whole Hershey bar right on top. And it's like this. <laughs> so, so what I did was I got it wait, nice. Wait, wait, wait. I got it like halfway charred, right? On both sides. And then right before it's about to get charred, right? I put the Hershey bar right on top. My, so mind is, like this. my mind is blown even before this because so far as I understand, 99.999% of people when making a s'more take a whole graham cracker, then break it in half to make a square s'more. You made Ooh, a submarine sandwich. I wanted to have, uh, we'll, we're going to get to MJ in one second. I wanted to make sure that my graham cracker was the shape of the fucking Hershey bar. It's right? just one of those things that was just sitting right there in front of you yeah. the whole time. Right? And, and it's just... a perfect size because a graham cracker unbroken is literally like, like five millimeters larger than the, uh, the outline of the Hershey bar. So I'm like, okay. So I want to lay this motherfucker right on my pitchfork of fucking, you know, marshmallows that are now perfectly cooked. And I'm just going to touch it in the fire. Shh, right? Just that shh. The whole, the whole mamma jamma? Whole mamma jamma. So it's just the marshmallow. And then once it was nicely melted and you want to make sure that it just gets soft because it will go through the cracks and just melt all, all the way. Maybe I did that the first time around. <laughs> okay, so second time around, I made it better. But because I really only had two graham crackers, I want to make it right. So it's perfectly melted through. I, I, I try to take it off. But you can't. No. It, the marshmallows get stuck. You can't undo a s'more. You can't take How do you take it off completely? Because if you, the only way to do, take the marshmallow off the s'more is by barely cooking the marshmallow. But if you properly cook it so it's soft, I see the squish. You can't get the slide I, out. I'm just trying to say, like, much. I literally spent like six hours thinking about the construction of a s'more and how stupid it is. And <laughs> I'm just saying, like, I'm going to spend the rest of my summer coming up with a better way. Because <laughs> what happened was, I then tried to take the sandwich of the graham cracker and pull it off, and it all cracked and crumbled, and they all laughed at me. I mean, that's a fucking kid Icarus moment if I've ever heard They're when everyone's laughing. making a square one and you're like double length listen if you don't if you don't try to shoot for greatness <laughs> double length full full chocolate bar yeah. six marshmallow fucking sport yeah it was fucking awesome the idea was awesome execution I'm gonna figure it out don't worry don't worry I believe it. I'm going to contact the, all the food scientists I know. It, we're going to construct. It's got to stay. If we can find a new shape for us more, we can just probably abandon every other business uh, <laughs> pursuit we've, we've the tried. The reason is, again, the marshmallow, if you don't cook it, is the only way to take it off the fucking skewer or stick. Have you seen this, though? I mean, we can move on from s'mores in a second. But have you seen the chocolate stuffed marshmallow? Yeah. I don't think that that is useful. No, it's useful to put in my mouth when it's not <laughs> without cooking. Warm, it. yeah. <laughs> but you want to get, you can't eat that thing because here's another thing. If you don't get the chocolate hot, you're bound to crack the graham cracker crust. Yes. When you bite into it, it's going to shatter like, you know, glass. Mm -hmm. Nobody's ever thought, maybe I haven't done any research, but I'm shocked at how stupid the s'more is. <laughs> thankfully, thankfully, no one in Australia will give a shit because they don't make <laughs> s'mores. <laughs> We're safe with this take. 
Because <laughs> Australians are like, what are you talking about? A Marsh what? The, the Skip Bayless of food. <laughs> um, all right. We're, we're, we're going to take a break. We're going to get with our interview with MJ. I didn't never pronounce MJ's last name. I was, I was afraid to. Trong? Trong. Trong. We'll ask her. We'll get MJ. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. No matter how you like your eggs scrambled, over easy, or sunny side up, the people at Vital Farms believe in one thing, keeping it bullshit free. That's why their pasture-raised eggs come from hens who each have over 108 square feet of space to roam and forage all year round. So you can spend less time questioning your food and more time enjoying it. Look for Vital Farms in your grocery store and learn more at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit free. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. All right, we're, we're joined with MJ Trung of Meyer Labs. And you may ask what Meyer Labs is. It's a company that Major Dome Media is working with. We work very closely with the founders, the family. And by doing so, we've become very close with MJ Chung. And uh, where are you calling from right now? I'm calling in from the lovely Brighton, UK. It's a seaside town, sort of a straight shot south from London. We escaped here sort of during the pandemic when uh, London was scarier. <laughs> And a, a nice life by the sea seemed to be calling. I've been to Brighton. What? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I did a, a semester abroad in London. And you ended up in I Brighton? I did a day uh, in, to Brighton because that's where people go for the beach. And can I say, I didn't know that when I was younger, and this is before the internet, I didn't know a beach could have boulders as pebbles. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, the famous Brighton's beach are like the kinds of stones they used to stone people. (laughs) (laughs) That's the sand. It was really weird when we first moved here because, you know, I'm used to sandy beaches. And, you know, when I was living in Hong Kong, you got the most gorgeous sandy beaches. Um, And here I was like, what's with all these rocks? I was like, did they cart in rocks from somewhere? No, (laughs) like men did not bring (laughs) truckloads of pebbles to lay on these beaches. They're a naturally occurring, you know, thing. It's pretty incredible. Wait, I didn't. Hong Kong has beautiful beaches. It does. I did not know that. Oh mm-hmm. yes, interesting. Hidden, hidden gem. How far? How 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 accessible are they? Very. It's like a fifteen minute cab ride from the center of town to like beautiful secluded beaches. The water is warm as bath water. You can watch the sunset. You can get an ice cream from the you know what? the kiosk behind. Get a beer. It's the best. It's so good. What? Yeah. That's insane. I had no idea. There's big boating culture, clearly, in Hong Kong. There's there's everything. Of course there's beaches then. Yeah. It's hot as hell. <laughs> so of course there's beaches. Well, you were how long did you live in Hong Kong, MJ? About six years. Yeah. Yeah. I miss I miss it a lot, actually. And when we first met, you were in Hong Kong before you moved to Brighton. Mm-hmm. And 
how did how did that come about? Why can you recall why we were put together? Um well, from my recollection, um we had sent you a bunch of pans and you really liked the ones that we had done. So it was like, hey guys, want to work together on some stuff? So yeah, we got on some phone calls and started shooting around ideas and basically had the time of our lives, if I just say so myself. <laughs> yeah, so that's how I remember it. I don't know. I think that, that was re- one of the real highlights of the past, you know, the pandemic, um, you know, was working off this relationship that I've developed with the Cheng family um, for some time. And I was introduced to them via Corey Lee of Bennu. And, um, you know, that turned into a lot of different things, working with Any Day and Steph. But one of the things that was truly one of the highlights, as you mentioned, was getting to work with you and your team before even really anything was even made was like, hey, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? And moving forward, we want to share this and I want MJ to come on board because we've talked about it before. We're trying to, we're not trying, we are working on products, uh, hard goods, pots and pans, et cetera. But it's important to me that we tell why we're doing it and the origin of it all, where it's not just we're slapping our name on it and like, look, look how cool this is. I want us to be invested in this. And getting to do something from scratch, de novo, with MJ and her team was like a real highlight. That's Mm -hmm. a good word to describe it. Yeah, I remember you, this is a few years ago at this point, I remember you telling me after you had this call, because we, you know, you obviously have many, many, many thoughts on cookware home cookware, you were coming to it new and you were thinking about things like, you know, hybrid walks and nonstick and all of this stuff. And I remember you saying like, I met this woman who could answer all of the questions I had. Like, why is something like this? And MJ would say, here is why. But you know what I said before that? I said, uh, I've been talking with this woman named MJ and I think she has the best voice for audio I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, very pleasant to <laughs> listen she to. She has the best microphone setup, and she's not even a podcaster. Look I at know. her setup; I it's know. unreal. She looks like she's like a nineteen twenties singer. MJ's voice is angelic. You're making me blush, guys. Um, M- MJ, nice that sounded. MJ, you were in Hong Kong uh, working for Meyer. Can you for for people who don't understand like. What is your role at Meyer, uh, and how did you end up working for them in Hong Kong? Yeah, so basically, I, I joined Meyer about 10 years ago, right out of my grad program in industrial design. And um, at the time, you know, I was finishing up my program, I was looking for a job, and I found this opportunity um, with a company based in Hong Kong. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm, I'm the kind of per, like dumb person who didn't even really know where Hong Kong was. <laughs> at the time, but, um, they were looking for an industrial (laughs) and I was like, yeah, I'm an industrial designer. Let's go. So I interviewed and, um, you know, the company wanted to start a new division that was dedicated to human centered design. This is something that I studied in my program. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll move to Hong Kong and, uh, and be the first person to, to join this team. So yeah, fast forward 10 years later and here I am still <laughs> uh, chugging away. But basically um, what we did was we started um, an innovation team whose focus was solving real user problems using ethnographic research and like human-centered design principles. 
um, to basically inspire our product designs. And this is something that is honestly mm -hmm. really unique to the industry. Um, and yeah, just a really different way of thinking about how to design a product, starting with real people and how they really cook. Two things. What is ethnographic for people? Um, ethnographic research, it's just like, for us, what it means is we travel around the world to real people's homes, let's say in India or in Singapore, in Japan, in Australia, in the UK, in the US. Um, and we observe, we watch them cook. We, we film them cooking. We photograph their entire kitchen. You know, we ask them lots of questions about their daily habits. You know, where do you grocery shop? When you need to make a meal in 15 minutes, what do you make? If you're cooking a meal for friends, what do you make? Um, and we just try to get an understanding without being prescriptive, without telling them what to do. We just ask what they really do and also observe what they really do. Um, and we kind of collect all of that data as this sort of rich fertilizer for our product development process. Um, one of the things that... And how many families did you speak to? We've done probably over 150 households so far um, around the world since we started the team. But, you know, it's, it's a process that started very slowly. And we, you know, we had never done it before when we stepped foot in the first person's home. And it's a process that we've iterated on and improved over the years. Is the, is the hope when you... Look, there's so much to unpack here. I, I'm going to come back to the to the ethnographic research. I think this is is totally fascinating. But you also said something really important uh, that I don't want to skip over: human centered design. Can you explain what that means? And for somebody like me who who has no idea, what kind of design is not human centered? Like what what is the opposite of human centered design? Yeah. So a typical way that a pan let's say from another company might get designed is they would say, Oh, Hey, um, we have an opportunity at retailer X for a 10 piece set at 99.99. Um, can you give me three options and we'll go from there. So if you know that your target price point is 99.99, you already know all of the specs. It's this thickness. It's this. Coating. Okay. So it's like price, price centered design. Price-centered and then basically minor aesthetic differences. So you're like, okay, I have a squarish version okay. here. I have a roundy version here. And then I have like a, you know, a triangular version here. And which one do you like best? So that is one way of going about it. And honestly, probably fairly common, I would say. Uh, Human-centered design is kind of what I described before, where you enter the design process with a mindset of empathy and um, observation. Uh, like, Sometimes people will like do surveys and you'll ask people like, hey, what, what problems do you experience in the kitchen? The problem with that is people are not self-aware. They, they do not see themselves and what they're doing. They'll say, oh, I have no problems. Everything's fine, you know, because humans are good at adapting and, and just kind of chugging along. But if you watch people, you're like, she nearly burned herself or, you know, her cabinet is a crazy mess. You know, <laughs> these types of things that you only identify by stepping into their homes and their lives and observing. So the human-centered design process starts with observation, um, interviews, yes, uh, and then ideation, and then basically iterating until you have great ideas and then testing them. So it's this sort of really rigorous process of coming up with new designs that really help people. 
I was super, super stoked and happy when we were beginning to talk about all of this because you gave me a treasure trove of that ethnographic data. And for those that know me, I may not seem like a data-driven person, but I love making decisions based off of data. It does not determine what I do, but I, it makes me make better decisions, I hope. And it was a, I, I just wasn't expecting that you were a data nerd too, right? And it blew me away that that was everything that I sort of hold and believe in, you guys were embracing as well. So I thought, wow, this is, this is going to, this is, this is great. This is exciting. And the creative process didn't begin until you were asking yourselves, are we actually filling a need here? Mm -hmm. And can I ask what was, and what is still actually the, the void and hole that's left in uh, by the sort of pots and pans industry right now, right? What, what are you trying to fix with the data that you receive? Oh my gosh, so many things. I mean, one of the, the <laughs> underlying sort of bits of DNA uh, that we have on our team is to challenge conventions. And so much about the cookware industry is like, why is it that way? And it's like, oh, that's just the way it's always been done. Okay, so one really good example is like if you go into any big box retailer and you look at the cookware aisle, like you will see boxes full of pans. Let's see, 12-piece sets, 15-piece sets. Everything in that set will be made out of the same material, probably nonstick aluminum or stainless steel, right? And the fact is different materials have different properties. You know, different metals conduct heat differently. There's different suitabilities for different things. And yet, the reason why these um, cookware sets are sold in the same material in a giant box is because that's what that factory makes. They'll box it up, ship it out, and try to basically cram in as many pieces as possible for the lowest possible price. They're not thinking about what is what do people actually need? You know, what what is possibly the most minimal set that someone could use and, you know, fulfill all their daily needs. So there's lots of, lots of things like this where it's like, oh, this is just the way it's always been done. And we try as much as we can to be like, well, why, you know, does it need to be like that? And can we possibly do it differently to make people's lives easier? So when, I, when MJ was telling me all this and I was discovering it and exactly how she sounded right then, you know, that's exactly what I would ask about fine dining, mm -hmm. you know, and just taking that pattern and applying it to a lot of the, the things that we're working on. To me, this is all sort of the same bucket. I, I was going to say, when she talks about the sort of ethnographic research and trying to see through whether it's people not identifying their own problems or, you know, they're always that classic thing of like, you ask people what they watch on TV, they're all going to say, oh, PBS and the news, <laughs> right? But like, really, what are they watching? It reminds me so much of the stories that you and I used to talk about where you're standing at the line. The reaction on the face cannot lie. Maybe I will say, maybe your customers all say, because they want to sound sophisticated, like, oh, we really love the foie gras dish because I'm supposed to like that. But you standing in the kitchen, you say, if you love it so much, why is there so much left on your plate? And why do you actually gravitate toward that other dish? Like, what is really happening here? Because then you can really make an adjustment to reality rather than you know, this picture you're presented with. So when I hear her saying, you know, oh, I don't have any problems, but then I go to the house and I see a messy cabinet. I wanted to try to tie this together with this question. When you see that, MJ, you're not just like judging this person about that. You're saying, oh, 
your cabinet is messy for a reason, right? And, and one of those reasons might be that you were sold a 15-piece set of cookware of which you only need. And five, and, and actually it's probably 18, and five of those are lids. Just five different lids that yeah. only fit one oh, pin, nine, right? nine lids, yeah. maybe. Right. Yeah. Like, that's, that's, that's what you're talking That's included in the set is a fucking lid. For every And pin. that price is like, look, we have 20, 22-piece <laughs> set. Right. And, and So is that what you're talking about? Like, linking between the mess you see in a cabinet and the human-centered result. Yes. To me, human-centered design, the purpose of it is to disappear and to just let you get on with your life. You know what I mean? Like, des- like designs that actually make your life worse. <laughs> That's what we're trying to battle, you know, and just think a little bit about what you're making and how it helps the people that you make it for. Just looking at their daily experiences and their, you know, their circumstances, you can really like human-centered design can make people's lives better. And it's, yeah, it's my passion. And I think I hear passion in y'all's voices about it too. When I was sent like the first prototypes, I got it. I was like, oh, it looked different. And it took some time for me to warm to it. But the more I cook with it, the more I understood the functionality of it. And the practicality of it. What were some of the things that have been inherited as, oh, this is how we've always done it. This is why it's never going to change. What were some of the things that I asked about that you had a ton of data and a ton of evidence to suggest that this is where we should deviate from tradition? Hmm. I'm trying to remember what you asked about. Possibly the handles. Um, the Handles being made of silicone like they are, they're really grippy, they're really cushy. It's not your typical high-end product. High-end products typically have metal handles, you know, your your really fancy brands, let's say. And that is the most premium spec. So you might say, oh, maybe we should do that. Um, When we're talking about everyday people just cooking in their kitchens, they're not necessarily thinking, what's going to look the coolest? What's going to make me look like the most pro chef? They're thinking, I want to cook something. You know, I want it to be comfortable. I want it not to hurt my wrist. I don't want to burn myself when I'm, you know, handling this when I'm t- if I'm taking it out of the oven, for example. So we did so much research to design this handle and to give it the spec that it has now. And it might not be the most premium spec per se, but it is to us the most human-centered, the one that solves the most problems, the ones that's the most comfortable. Um, and as beautiful as we could make it, yes, but most of all, something that serves uh, people and like, the, their their daily needs and you know the safety and the comfort and all of that good stuff that we basically identified in our ethnographic research. When I saw all the research about the handle, I was like, "Whoa, okay." <laughs> There's my there answer. It is, there it is. There it is. <laughs> when you do, when you're talking about like all this this ethnographic research, and you're going to you know 150 plus homes, I have to imagine that when you walk into that one house and you you have that person who is kind of like what you just said, which is, oh, this is clearly a person who wants to like buy the fanciest pan and look like the most professional. Like that data is probably the least useful, right? Like how many times do you have to see? Like you want to see how. 80% of people have messy cabinets, right? Like what, what, what makes data sort of useful versus not useful in, in these, these home visits you do? Um, you know, we, 
we try to identify trends across households. And honestly, people's needs are pretty common from home to home. Of course, there's regional differences, you know, and, and, and differences from country to country. But what people find to be comfortable and what people find to be, you know, uh, a high priority for them, it's, it's not that different. It's, it's just not necessarily what's always been done. Um, and I think you can kind of tell when people have been compromising. Um, like we, we visited this one guy who is kind of like you said, he like, he really likes premium cookware and he had a lot of premium cookware in his, in his cabinet, but that was actually one of the top things that he told me. He's like, Oh, MJ, I love these premium pans that I have. You know, they're really nice and they're worth the money, but the ones with the metal handles burn my hands off. (laughs) And I really (laughs) wish that they would not do that. (laughs) So even though he really had an oven, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I love premium stuff as much as anybody, right? Copper pots, all of these things. But the maintenance on them is quite a bit. And if you work in an open three mission star kitchen, you're going to have a crew dedicated to polishing and keeping those things maintained. So I look at that kind of equipment, not that they're not superior, because they are in the technical aspects of cooking. But this is where I've really looked at things differently. What is good in a super ambitious, high end professional kitchen is completely different than what is useful for you as a home cook. And I think what gets marketed is the, to the home cook is the professional way of looking at food and cooking. And it's just not the same thing. Um, MJ, what were some of the most surprising things you discovered from that data? Mm. I think you told me like people cook spaghetti in, <laughs> in, in a, in okay. a pan that I was like, what? <laughs> This might be more about how naive we were when we started, but uh, I, this is a fun story. So, you know, when we would go into people's homes, we asked them a bunch of questions and we're like, okay, we're very clever. We'll ask them about, you know, the pot that they use to boil and that'll be our stock pot question. And we'll ask them about the pan they use to fry eggs. That'll be our fry pan question. And then uh, we'll ask them about the pan they use to make sauce. And that'll be our saucepan question. And then once we got all our data back, we're like, oh my God. <laughs> When we asked the people our saucepan question, they were actually talking about their fry pans. Um, and once you think about it, it's it may be really obvious, but when people are going to make a sauce, you you know you have your aromatics, you fry up your aromatics, then you add your tomatoes, your tomato, and then you reduce it down. That's so much easier to do in a fry pan, right, than in a saucepan. So like, <laughs> it's called a saucepan, but it's actually used for many other things than sauce. Right, people do ramen. Maybe you're boiling eggs. Maybe you're warming up milk. You know, depending on what country you're in, you're doing different things. But that was a real eye opener for us. Yeah. <laughs> and and again, just with the conversations with MJ and the team, um, who we got to know quite well over over the you know three plus years, was something that popped in my head. I was like, wait a second, like how we cook today in 2023 is dramatically different than 10 years ago, 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. in terms of the acceptance of things and the ingredients people use. But it is light years different than, say, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 13, I mean, 300 years ago, when the saute pan, the rondo, these pots and pans that almost every culture has, but we live in a world where a lot of this is from the Western French perspective, like going back to the Medici family, were created, and... Yeah, it shows you to the timelessness of these things. But think about the words we still use. That's a saute pan. That's a sautus, whatever. Who cooks those foods that were 
used 300 plus years ago. Nobody cooks those foods that were, you know, those pots and pans were initially designed for. And I thought it was not that we're getting away from any of that stuff. No, but a saute pan, everyone will need. But it began the process of asking, could we change the people's people's perspective and understanding of how they cook in their home today? And maybe they would be open to something that's new and Mm -hmm. different and more practical. And I I really enjoyed being able to have these philosophical conversations with, with the design team. Yeah, because I mean, the saucepan thing is a really interesting example. Like uh, that shape of pan, the sort of uh, high-sided pan in a French brigade kitchen, yes, is for whisking sauces, <laughs> making your sauces. The name is almost misleading, right? Because that's not, like MJ, to your point, that's not how people use it. So can you, can you again, I think the whole thing here that's really interesting, like, and I understand why you've always gravitated toward this, is what's pragmatic? What is a more elegant solution to the reality of things rather than a theoretical world or a thing that's based around how things have traditionally been used or, or labeled or whatever? MJ, what were the other, what were, I know you said there's some regional differences, but what are some kind of universalities that, that emerged um, in, in sort of looking through people's cookware? Um, like, for instance, how many people use nonstick in their homes? Oh, like 90 plus percent. Yeah. It's, it's everywhere, Whoa. everywhere. Yes. Super common. Yeah, definitely. Oh, I thought it was just my parents and me. <laughs> <laughs> 90% is wild. Would you, did you know that before going into this? I did not know that. Yeah, it's, that's crazy. What are the, what are the other sort of, what are the ties that bind us all together when it comes to our, our kitchens? Well, everyone's kitchen storage is a mess. <laughs> Whether you're an Australian <laughs> mom or, you know, a, a, a a, a recent grad in Tokyo, uh, lids is a pain in the butt all over the world. That's something we noticed everywhere. Um, yeah, what else? Fry pans are pretty common all around the world, but then there's some shapes that are much more common in some places than others. Um, one kind of favorite piece that we identified that we hadn't, that wasn't really on our radar before is called the chef's pan. It's kind of like a wok, but with a, a bit more of a wider base. Um, and people in Japan and in the UK really like this shape because it's basically like you take a fry pan and then you make the sides really tall. So then you can kind of do fry pan stuff and then mm-hmm. you can add a ton of liquid and then do like braising and stewing and all kinds of stuff like that. So it's kind of similar to a wok in that way. So um, yeah, we found that that was really, really popular. Um, so Some things which are, are different from country to country are also really funny. Um, since moving to the UK... I found out that like Brits actually call all pans saucepans. Like if they're referring to pans in general, they'll call them saucepans. Did you know that? <laughs> and then like the most. So they say, well, they say, hand me that aluminium saucepan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Is exactly. that aluminium clad? <laughs> <laughs> and then the most popular. Did you, when you were doing, when you were doing the home visits. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. No, 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 you were saying was something way more important than no, the yeah, most way, you're the most popular. No, yeah. way in in the UK, the most popular type of set is a a three saucepan set. So saucepan, saucepan, saucepan. Like I I don't understand their obsession with saucepan. For beans and beans yeah. and beans. <laughs> <laughs> this will be my boil, this will be my squeak. 
Uh, what, what, um, when you did the home visits, this is, this is truly inane. I'm glad Dave backtracked and asked your actual thing. <laughs> did you guys ever eat the food or taste the food that people were cooking? Oh, yeah, always. Yeah. Definitely a highlight of the experience. What were some, give me, what was, what was like a, what was a real standout? Oh my gosh. Um, I, I was lucky enough to get to do uh, our India visits and just some of the amazing dishes that these Indian families made for me. They're, they were like so kind, so generous. Um, I remember one of my favorite dishes was uh, from a South Indian family. Um, she made like tomato chutney and uh, I'm just, it was a while ago, so I'm struggling to remember, but the, uh, I think she made puri. And, and uh, it was just so delicious. And it was so hot. I was in Ahmedabad and it was literally 41 degrees Celsius. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit. I'm like fully in Celsius mode over here, having lived in the UK. But it, I was like sweating blood. And then she was just there, you know, making chapati in, you know, on her tawa, like, like it was nothing. Like she didn't even feel the heat. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe you do this every day. <laughs> it was incredible. That's awesome. Um, another thing that struck me with the, some of the designs we were working on was where you wanted to gravitate towards. And again, I had a little resistance because I was really not brainwashed, but a lot of these things aren't uh, wholesale changes, right? But a lot of the ideas were slight changes. They just have never been done before, in, in my opinion, um, because I think it deviates from the status quo. In, in, in any way, people don't want that. We're not talking about this, the, the coding in a pan. That's a whole other subject that we can get MJ to trash <laughs> others on quite a bit. But the shape of the pot, right? I was like, why? Why? I, I remember telling you, it looks funny to me. And now I'm like, of course it's that way. <laughs> Did it look funny to you when you, when you, when you were like trying to tackle this? Um, our pots, yeah, the rounded shape, the belly shape and the flared rim. I thought it was kind of cute, you know, kind of retro. Um, and actually, you know, we've had kind of, kind of shapes like this in our catalog for decades and decades. But, um, you know, the reason why we designed it this way, shall I, shall I say why? <laughs> yes, we, we discovered that this, this particular rounded shape, as well as the flared rim, created this like weird science thing where it reduced the amount of boilovers by like a significant proportion. Um, and basically what happens is because of the curvature of the pot, the foam created gets pushed up and towards the center rather than just going up and out. And then there's also this sort of like surface tension thing that can happen with like, I don't know, meniscus science words. I don't know. I showed the video of this, this, this boilover <laughs> thing happening to a physicist friend of mine. And I was like, dude, what is happening with this? He's like, yo, MJ, I don't know. I think we should write a paper about it. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the shape and is the shape. Again, it doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't mean it's not going to boil over if you fill it with stuff, but it really reduces it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And these are those low hanging fruits that really have never been plucked because I think people were too afraid to challenge convention. And the more we, you know, went down this hole together, I was like, wow, this is a perfect match. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, because 
having to change people's perceptions about what they cook with is no different than why we love the microwave and the any day so much. So to be able to work with this with MJ and her team. And another thing was everybody was like, I mean, the construction of the team was not like any team that I have seen before. Hmm. Right. you you have like, you're, you're basically, I always look at this as Meyer labs is your sort of like that. This is your baby. You know what I mean? Um, Can you talk about the team that you helped assemble? Yeah, sure. Um, so when I first joined the company 10 years ago, I was the only uh, hire on the team and I was the only expat on the team. And I was sort of in the corner by myself in, <laughs> in Hong Kong, not able to speak Cantonese. And it was like that for a year. And then um, uh, I hired my friend Seal, uh, who I had gone to um, Pratt with. Uh, we both studied industrial design. And uh, she's now on the Any Day team. She's just a brilliant designer. And over the years, we assembled this sort of, you know, motley crew of designers, uh, food nerds, engineers, uh, creatives. And it's a team that is super diverse. We've got people from like 12 different, you know, 12 different heritages from around the world. Um, and one thing I think that's really cool about the team is that there's a lot of um, women uh, and, you know, women designers on the team. And honestly, the world of industrial design, like if you go to like museums, right, and you look at the wall of like the greats of industrial design, what you're going to see is a wall full of white men. <laughs> and so I think it's really cool uh, that on our team, we have a lot of um, a, a lot of different people and a lot of women of color. Uh, doing the design, doing the research, having the insights. Um, yeah, so I think that's that's pretty cool. And that translated just to talking to the team when we would talk about culinary situations and problems. It had to, I had to remind myself, I was like, oh, and if you've been listening to MJ, it, it, it's much more of a global holistic approach than my myopic, this is how we do it in the lower 48 states. Uh, and maybe some degree Europe, but clearly it's different. How we cook in America is fragmented by your location. East coast, Southwest don't matter. Everywhere treats food differently, not even including the melting pot perspective. So what I really appreciated too, the, the idea that when you're talking about food, people are talking about it from where they live and where they're from. And this is trying to tackle on a global situation because Everybody uses pots and pans. So how do you make something that's practical, not just for America, but for everybody? And everybody has the same sort of situations. And quite frankly, the problems you might have in an American kitchen, if you live in a suburban household, you may not be able to understand what it's like to live in a tiny, tiny apartment in Hong Kong or Tokyo, where space becomes a premium. And I really love that challenge of designing things with your team where it is cross-cultural. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most, honestly, amazing experiences I've ever had, being able to do that research and try to understand lifestyles in different countries and what kitchens look like in different countries and what people's circumstances are. Um, it, it honestly is a huge challenge because like when you design products, hard goods, um, you know, especially as a company, you, you don't want to, 
create unique products for every market. You want to create one product that you can sell everywhere, right? Like the iPhone. You want to create it once and sell it everywhere. But with cooking, that doesn't really necessarily Well, work. tell everybody what we're working on, MJ. God, they said that was a secret. The M phone is what we're working on. Darn, we'll have to edit that part out. No, um, yeah. Like... Different, different cooking cultures are, can be, you know, so, so different and so localized. So one of our big challenges as a team has been to just take in as much data as we can and try to find those commonalities, those like fundamental human samenesses, right? And try to align those across the different markets. And of course, you have to recognize some markets, you just need to have that special thing. You want to sell in Japan, you just got to have that tamagoyaki pan. You know, you can't not have it. But in other cases, you know, maybe you can use this human-centered design and use those insights to question everything and then just propose something that's totally new, but that really solves like people's real problems across different markets. You know what I mean? Or even not even, I mean, I'm thinking, I'm hearing you describe your team and, you know, having members from 12 different cultural backgrounds or doing ethnographic research across, you know, five continents or whatever it is. (laughs) To me, I'm thinking about less in terms of creating product that can be globally minded. And I I hear these descriptions. I'm like, well, that's just America. (laughs) Like, forget I can't cook the same. I don't cook the same as somebody in a different region. I might just not understand how my neighbor does it (laughs) because we're completely, we come from completely different backgrounds and not having the input from, you know, I, I think that this type of thing is at least on paper like the greatest justification for diversity right i'm if if all of us cook if if me and dave and a team of people that are just like us sit in a room and try to come up with something we're all going to have like a very similar answer we all cook the same thing right but one person comes in and says you know that thing you guys made um you guys don't make grilled cheese sandwiches and I do. And uh, this doesn't work for that whatsoever. Like if you just don't have the other opinion, you know, you can't, you can't create something that's going to even work within the American market. Well, that's why I, I really enjoy this reverse engineering, right? Taking the goals and then trying to work our way backwards as to how we can sort of stay, stay on that trajectory. And besides like, you know, how do you make a pan or pot that everyone can relate to? Not an easy thing to do. The other thing that was reverse engineered was the price point. And then talking with MJ and the team, I, again, felt very uh, aligned and kindred spirits because we'll, we'll do it. We're going to have MJ on a bunch of times. We're just, we're not going to talk too much about the stuff that's about to come out or soon or when yeah, I'm not even soon, quite sure. Soonish. But it was important that the price point was not prohibitive, right? That it was also not, um, crazy cheap because we still had to get good and good products and materials to make. But, you know, I thought that when we're talking about this, you would want it to be like the most expensive stuff out there, but it's not, it's, it's, I think value. And it's how I always think about the foods that we do at the restaurants. I want people to buy it and to feel like they got value to from it and it's something that's useful and it's not some bullshit commercial where it's a lifetime guarantee and you never use it look i i can scratch some bullshit with my knife or it, it's not going to do anything and everything it's a really well-designed pot and pan that's affordable will provide value and you and i use it our studio is full of it 
every single day. But to that same point, like part of part of the value though, you you just touched on it too, is like durability is a huge aspect too, right? Like you can buy a, a new fancy trending nonstick pan and it will last its non-stickiness will last for three weeks, right? Like even if it's cheap, that's not good value because I have to buy six of these a year, right? So like I know that was a huge part of the design process too, right, MJ? Yes. Um how long nonstick lasts is one of the most important things to people. So we did lots of testing on this. Um and yeah, so basically we wanted to say, hey, what is the best possible pan that we can make? And what does it take to get there? And, you know, how much does that cost? And is that worth the cost? And we were like, oh my God. We looked at some of the the techniques and the manufacturing processes and we're like, oh my gosh, if we do this one step, this one technical step, we can make this nonstick last more than twice as long, literally more than twice as long. Um, we we have to do that because the the what we want to deliver is the best possible experience for our users. And yeah, it was really a no-brainer, um, even though there was, you know, added cost when you add processes like that. We're like, yeah, we have to do this. We have to create the best possible pen we can. A couple more things before I get you out of here, MJ. Um, what I love most, and this is also what drives Chris Ying, and I'm sure it will drive you crazy and probably, what's quite frankly, has driven you crazy already. Hey, I got this idea. Let's... Uh, let's MJ, what do you think? Because once I saw you could do all this stuff, I, I was like, wow, we can take these crazy ideas I have and make them reality. I have thrown a lot of ideas at you. How many of them? I don't want to say how many, but now I believe that you, what I love is clearly because I have to love it because you've been receptive to it. There's been a handful of my hundred ideas that I text to you. And you're like, this is actually good. <laughs> <laughs> That. He's asking what his hit rate is. The broken <laughs> clock is right. That? I'm a broken clock. No, that's that's what it takes to come up with good ideas. You have to have a lot of ideas. I mean, to only be <laughs> mm-hmm. able to have good ideas, you'd, you'd never come up with one, right? Not to say, oh, no, Dave, all of your ideas have been good. Should I back up and say all of your ideas have been good? <laughs> <laughs> you know, she's so kind. No, she's so kind. But I, I can tell by the email or text message, she's like, are you fucking serious right now? I'm working on your other stupid fucking idea. <laughs> yeah, I'm working on the upside down saucepan, Dave. Another hit one. What if, what if he cooked the food underneath? Yeah, great. Um, and, um, and you recently became a mom. I did, yeah. Right? How old's your, how old's your baby? Five months. Whoa. This is, this is actually a great age. This is it's just it's all cuteness and no mobility. <laughs> it's great age. Do you guys have <laughs> it's any? The last, have it's any the last great age. <laughs> no, I want to keep it all a surprise for you. <laughs> this is honestly a great age. It's, mean, a, it's a wonderful time full of possibility and joy and love. I can't do anything. Self delusion that <laughs> things are going to be great. Uh, <laughs> is the baby sleeping through the night? He was, and now we've hit the quote unquote four month sleep regression, and he's waking regression. up every few hours. Yeah, regression. Oh, it's so uh, nothing that a little uh, Johnny Walker can't take care of for <laughs> both you and the baby. <laughs> noted, noted. Yeah, no need um, to pump and dump. What, just uh, <laughs> are you doing uh, solid foods yet? Not yet, not yet. Over here, they recommend you wait till six months, so we'll see how long we can go. 
Well, oh, do you have any tips on first beans on toast? I'm not listening to them until they drive on the right side of the road. Before. <laughs> do, you, do you have any tips? I mean, who came for, up with that? Um, we made the fucking automobile. Not right. Six months before they have their first uh, full English breakfast. I wanted to do something with MJ, unless you want to. Yeah, go, go. Um, I thought it would be fun while we have a, a former longtime Hong Kong resident with us to run through a little top five if you want. Oh, let's do it. I was wondering if MJ could give us her top five from her time living in Hong Kong. What are the top five dim sum dishes? Oh, yes. People in Hong Kong don't eat dim sum. What? 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 Uh-huh. That's a fact. Dim sum. That's like saying everybody in New York goes to the Statue of Liberty. And eats 31 MJ, hot dogs. MJ, people in Hong Kong don't eat dim sum. Is Come on, it was like the only lunch that we would go to for company lunch. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What are, what are the top five dishes? Okay. Like every time you go, you order these, you, you get these five. Okay. My, my We're not judging you. Okay, please don't judge me. I'm not a trash human being, but <laughs> my favorite dim sum dishes. Okay, number one, I would say is Mabako, the the fried steamed turnip cake. You guys know this one? Mm-hmm. I really like yes. this one. Uh, fun, the steamed rice. It's the only bowl. way I eat turnip. <laughs> <laughs> the only way I eat is when you turn it into a cake and you fry it and you fill <laughs> it with... Bits of pork in it. Bits of pork and dried fish and stuff, yeah. <laughs> uh, I really like fun, the steamed rice rolls. They're like almost mm-hmm. as What's, good what, as the Vietnamese. You, what do you fill them with? Honestly, I like Ooh. them all. <laughs> them's, them's fighting words. Them's fighting words. What about the one that's wrapped around the yutong? Yeah. What is what? Do you like the one that has the 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 yutong in the middle, or do you what do you like inside of your your chung fun? I mean, obviously that one's good. I mean, I'll take anything. Honestly, the shrimp, the tasu, I like it all. I like that chewiness. You know, it's like soft and tender and chewy. Just love that texture. Um. Another one I love, the siu yuk, the crispy pork belly. Mm, so, so good. See, that's see that's only possible for you to say from, I, I feel like in America, the crispy pork belly, wild variation in quality from one place to the next. Mm. Only somebody who like eats it in Hong Kong can reliably get the Let's good stuff, say, right? Cantonese barbecue in America or outside of Hong Kong is very hit and miss. Subpar. Mostly miss. You had some good stuff in Canada, right? That's not America. I know, like, I'm, no, I'm, I'm lower sorry. 40. Let me <laughs> phrase this. Lower 40, Canada. Apologies. Yes. <laughs> that was, that was uncalled for. And let me rephrase that. I love Canada. I truly do. Just like I love, I really love Australia. I know. Just stop talking about burgers. All right. So crispy pork belly, rice paper or, or rice rolls, uh, turnip cake. What's four and five? Um, I really like the, the deep fried taro balls. Those are really good. Yeah. Um, you don't like that? Mm. <laughs> I got a soft spot for taro. I think for me, it's like not. It's, so these are the ones with like sort of like a nest of crispiness around the outside, yeah. right? <laughs> for me, it's it's not good texture on outside, not good texture on the oh. inside. <laughs> to each his own. To each his own. <laughs> Two bad textures. I'm wondering. We're getting down to number five here, Chang, and I have not heard word one about a, a dumpling in this in this right. list. This I, is, I'm waiting. I mean, if she doesn't do a dumpling, I, I, do I have, do she, I have the, to? We, we may have to cancel this. <laughs> no, no. What is the no, real no, answer? What, what was the what real answer? I mean, if you're talking dumplings, right? What am I choosing between like uh, like the hagao and the soup, soup dumplings? I mean, soup dumplings. It really depends on where you are, right? 
right? Like, what's your true answer, MJ? Don't don't Wait, cave what's the real answer? Don't cave to social pressure. <laughs> what I had written down was, uh, it was uh, well, I know it was a top five. It was a two way tie between <laughs> the those baked ch- uh, the chasu bao from Team Hoan. Do you know what I'm talking about? So not the steamed ones, but the baked ones. The baked ones with like the sugary stuff on top. Yeah, it's kind of a basic answer. Sorry about that. But then my second answer was the deep fried custard buns. You can call me basic if you like, but that's honestly what I would like to order every time. (laughs) It's all right. (laughs) It's all right to be basic. (laughs) You know, you're talking to Chris Yang. (laughs) The king of basic. (laughs) Uh, Do you have a five? I I am a little shocked that Hargau didn't make it. How did Hargau not make it? And Shumai. Shumai can understand. I'm a, I can understand. Because it's not aesthetically pleasing. <laughs> they are a big, big brainy looking And, and also, it's very difficult to put in one bite. Shumai is not a one biter. For a normal human. It's not a one biter because you have to distend your jaw to do it. I will say this. I, I, since moving to LA, the Shumai here are gigantic. Hargau. Very delicate. Beautiful. Yeah. It is. Yeah. Delicious. Yeah. It's gorgeous. Um, <laughs> what kind of... I, I mean, and... Of, See, oh my, are you guys eating? How big are you talking? Like, they're only this big, guys. You've been out of America too long. <laughs> the Shumai here are, your, your, your baby's five months old. They are bigger than your child's fist. Uh, it's a small no. muffin. <laughs> it's a small muffin. It is a small it's muffin a... or a small cupcake, and that's the size. And you know what I'm not a fan of? I got to just, I'm, I'm just coming out of the closet on a lot of things. What is this going to be? I do not like when I'm dining with dim sum with people and they want mustard to dip everything in. No hot mustard? No. Out. I'd rather than dip ketchup. That's how much I hate it. <laughs> that can't be true. Are you fans of the mustard move? Uh, I don't, I'm not offended by it, but if I can, if I can get vinegar is my first choice for most things. A little hot sauce. Hot sauce, yeah. Why do you need fucking mustard with dim sum? And then every now and then, I'll spring for some XO sauce. That's not, that doesn't count. That doesn't count. That doesn't count. MJ, are you pro mustard on your dim sum or no? Uh, No, I don't. I don't particularly. Speak the truth. No, I'm honest. What's your favorite color? What? (laughs) (laughs) None of her dishes would take mustard though. None of her dishes would take mustard. Who knows with this one? She's such a wild card. I'm mustard on everything. I'm I'm lying. (laughs) I'm just trying to save face. (laughs) All right. Well, it's very late for you. Um, What time is it in Brighton? 9.25 p.m. Yeah, let, 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 let's get you out of here. Thank you, MJ. We're going to have you on soon, um, especially when we get closer to the big launch of stuff. And we'll talk more about it then. But awesome. as uh, as always, thank you. We're so lucky to get to work with you and the whole team. And uh, thank you for sharing all this stuff. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, guys. Well, that was our conversation with MJ. We didn't get a chance to do everything I talked about uh, at the top of the podcast, but I wanted to do one thing. I want to talk about Slice because it happened before I forget. So, um, there are a bunch of friends um, at this vacation. Fishing. Adults. Children. But when the children went down, there was a lot of a lot of uh, extracurricular <laughs> uh, imbibing and ingesting of things. <laughs> um, <laughs> sure. One of which was uh, chocolate mushrooms. I <laughs> ate a lot of them. Um, <laughs> and this moment happened, and I had this epiphany while it happened. As while, one, as, while I as, was booming. As one as, as, one as want to do. Um, <laughs> I was 
we're sitting and having dinner and I'm looking at my friend who I haven't seen in, in a long time. And we're having pappardelle, but it was like a tomato, like a fresh tomato sauce. And like, not pappardelle, but something similar. And I'm looking at them in this state that is hard to describe unless you're there because you're not seeing anything, but you're just on the cusp. Because that's what I was trying to be, do everything in moderation. Anyway, um, and it's really in vogue. We talked about mushroom use a lot, mm-hmm. but it is fucking nuts right now. Mm-hmm. Nobody, like people that I never thought would be no, ha- just carrying like, chocolate mushrooms. Yeah. Suburban, suburban parents. <laughs> yeah. So happy. <laughs> anyway. And I'm looking at my friend and I, I keep on looking at the side of their mouth and I'm like, huh, is that a tomato seed or, or, or like, <laughs> or something horrible? Oh no! Or, or, uh, I'm not hallucinating at all. I'm literally like thinking to myself and having that conversation. What I want to do is bring up that moment and it's not your family. Or your close friends. For example, if Chris and I were eating and there was a similar situation where some smudge or food was on the corner, I'd be like, hey, uh, you have some fucking shit on your mouth. <laughs> that's uh, what did you that's say? literally exactly what he would say. Hey, hey, Corey, <laughs> I see you from the studio booth. Hey, you got all that shit? Why don't you fucking, you fucking gross, dude. Clean yourself Clean up, yourself. Man. You use a fucking napkin? You know what I mean? Like, that's what friends are for. But a stranger. Not a stranger. But someone you're friends with, but not super close with. But also, even if it is, you're now, even it could be a, cl- but now put, change the situation where we're two people that we're meeting for the first time. Mm-hmm. I can't say, hey, hey, fucking schmo, <laughs> you get that shit off your mouth. You can't say that. You're, you have to like text message or, or like hope, just hope. You have to do, you have to continually touch your own face. Just, yes. just hope that hoping it goes that away. They'll do the same. But the situation was this. <laughs> I'm sure this happens all the time. But again, what I love about, ingesting these kinds of things, you think about things in ways that you may not normally think about. My friend's wife is sitting across from him, this, this picnic table and another friend. And, you know, we're surrounded. There's a bunch of people eating dinner. And they're all on fucking mushrooms. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm looking at her thinking that she will say, hey, honey. Um, it's her job. It's her responsibility. Yeah. She's not saying anything. So I'm like, Cannot. Do, do I say something? <laughs> Am I the next to the order I, of succession? This, this, I'm just having this entire conversation. I was like, clearly everyone else is seeing this. Right. But there's something on the lower right side of his mouth. Why is no one else saying something? Uh-huh. Why am I the only person that's <laughs> obsessed with this right now? Do you think that perhaps everybody is also having the same that argument also in their crossed heads? my mind, and that we're now telepathically having the same feeling of like, Jesus, enough already! It's been like twenty five <laughs> minutes. Just wipe the shit from your mouth. Uh, but you, this this moment, whether you're in dinner, whether you're at a wedding, whether it's an interview, whatever, where you're in a situation where you can't say something, is very difficult, hmm. right? Now, the other moment is, what if, what if um, you don't say anything at all? Are you a bad person? Right? So even if it's oh, not in a wedding or whatever, you're dinner and they go to somebody else, they're like, that could affect people's I, perceptions I, of this person with shit on their mouth. I'm going to say a little bit, yes, you are. Right? Because it's a little bit like, 
I'm driving down the freeway and I see somebody get into an accident. Do I stop or do I say, ah, somebody else will take care of it? Now, what is it? If you're in this situation and not on mushrooms, but like <laughs> just in general, where you see somebody you're friends with and in, in, in a way where if you do say something, does that, do the other four people, the other three people, people sitting around them, do oh, you they outed, feel bad? You outed all of them. Yeah. Do they feel bad? That yes. they didn't say anything? Yes. If you and I were sitting here and we were both internally having a debate about whether to tell a guest. I'm getting to this really complicated situation here. This is serious game theory, right? <laughs> you almost have to go first. No, but if you don't, if you do go and say, hey, please wipe your mouth, then you make the other people feel bad. And are they being enlightened and hospitable by trying not to make someone feel bad that they've had something on their mouth? I think the only way to handle this situation <laughs> is to lean into it and be like, hey, Joe, none of these other people around here are going to tell you this, but you got some shit on your face, man. <laughs> Remember who's your friend here. But I think in that moment, it's very difficult to pull the trigger. That's all I want to say. Pulling the trigger is impossible. Pulling the trigger is impossible. And this is what happened. This is... <laughs> We listen. I, I know we got to get out of here, and I could literally spend thirty plus more minutes. I don't want to go anywhere. I want to talking about the scenarios. <laughs> I want to. All right, this. all right, all right. If you do nothing, this person that has a smudge on their face has two reactions. If you say nothing, they're gonna feel like an idiot when they go to the bathroom mm-hmm. and they look, and they're like, "Oh man!" Like they're gonna start to think, "Do they hate me?" <laughs> Like, I thought we were friends because a friend would tell me, hey, you got shit on your face. Right. And even worse than that, they're just thinking like, I look like such a fucking idiot this whole time. I know. Why wouldn't they tell me? I mean, if that's the thing. Like, if we were in a, a work event and I had shit on my face, you didn't say anything. I'd be like, fuck you, Chris. Dude, you made me look like an idiot. I'm not even talking about stains on the shirt. We're not even getting there yet. We're getting just to the face yet. This is a whole nother week of conversation about shit on your shirt. Right. So that's one scenario. The other scenario is, hey, you do have this and they are embarrassed because you outed them in front of people. It's, a, it's almost a lose-lose Pyrrhic decision. Well, that is guaranteed there's going to be some level of embarrassment. Even, even if you said it to me and, and us being close friends and you saying, hey, you got some shit on your face. Even then, there is a layer where I'm just like, oh, I'm a little embarrassed about that. Like, yeah. I think it's, I'm, I'm, I feel embarrassed. Yeah. So I'm thankful, but I'm still embarrassed. What makes the situation, I think, societally, one of the most difficult moral decisions you can make is a lose-lose situation. It's a trolley car problem. It's a real... <laughs> so we need to change the trolley car problem to the shit-on-your-face problem. It really is. It's a moral dilemma at much less stakes because you don't have a theoretical you know, person dying versus one <laughs> versus six or more, right? I, I have a... If I may, I have a third scenario that I thought was maybe what was going to happen to you in this, in this situation where you say, Hey, you've got like a little tomato seed right here. And they have to say to you, that's a cold sore. (laughs) (laughs) I want to get to that. I want to end on that. I want to end on that. The other scenario is the wife is on the other side. And I I got thinking, does she hate him? (laughs) Is she so mad at him that she's like, you fucking, is there something wrong with this slob? I fucking hate you. I think you're getting, it's so embarrassed because you have shit on your face and everyone sees it. I hope it stays there. Yeah. I was like, I was thinking that too. I was like, well, that's weird. Now, if I, if I intervene, am I, 
interjecting myself into a couple's situation. Yeah. yeah. I don't want that. <laughs> the last I love you, buddy, but I don't love you that much. I don't want to get in the middle of your marriage. And in the meantime, I'm literally trying to think, and you guys, if you've been in this situation, you know exactly what this is like. And unlike Chris, I'm not trying to do the, the pointing out. I'm trying. This sounds crazy because I believe in science and logic and the physical laws of the universe. Mm -hmm. I'm mentally trying to connect with another person. <laughs> hey, you got shit on your mouth. Or like my eye, like without doing eyes or, or maybe I can get like a nod from some other person in agreement. Like, <laughs> you know, like you're, you're, you're without having to do like, sure. No, of course, this makes the most sense is, is, is hoping in the moment. Think, you don't try to do that. You're hoping you're like mentally thinking that you can. You can develop situation. a telepathic mutation. Professor and, Xavier shit. Yeah. Just Jean Grey this shit. Yeah. Over here. <laughs> I guess that's one way of handling it. I know it. that sounds crazy, but the definitely, I tried it. I tried, I tried well, it. Why, I, you have to try it. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm not kidding. I definitely would try to send a mental signal. It is a lose-lose scenario. Now, this is, there's several more scenarios that we go through. But this is where I, I refrain from saying anything. <laughs> I, I realized that I didn't have enough conviction to say something because in my state, visually, I couldn't distinguish if it was smudge or a mole. <laughs> <laughs> and then I played out all the scenarios where you got a little something here. I know I was born with it, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, what do you say? If I said that and then it's like a fucking mole, a birthmark or something, I, trying to do a good Samaritan deed, turn out to be Lucifer himself. I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you, I've witnessed that happen in real life. <laughs> My sixth grade teacher, Mr. Bukema, had a birthmark under his eye, like a dark, you know, wine-colored birthmark. And in, in a school year, in middle school, you have two occasions for parents to come. There's back-to-school night and open house. These are the two times when the parents come to the school. Back-to-school night at the beginning of the year, my friend Nick Ross's dad <laughs> says to my teacher, hey, where'd you get that shiner? <laughs> it's like, oh, it's actually, it's, it's a birthmark. Pretty bad. Fast forward to the end of the school year <laughs> at open house, same dad comes to the same teacher. He's like, how'd you get that black guy? <laughs> he's like, for, for the fucking second I, time this year. I, I'm going to say that's part. not as bad. As like, you got a little something? No, you have, no, no, no. I think mine is way worse. Oh, if you were to say. It's like here. And you're like, oh no. Uh, it now, doesn't come off. It doesn't come off. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the shiner is like, it's so obvious. Right. But something that's like weird, especially when you have stubble and everything. You're right. It's really hard to determine, especially when you're in a semi-altered state. <laughs> you're right. It's really hard to distinguish. So I sat, to, I just ignored it. And then this moment that happens, these moments that happens, because the thing is like, it was so far away, like here on the chin, mm -hmm. that you know, he's not a savage. He, he's <laughs> clearly using a napkin, but it was so far off that it didn't, the surface area of the napkin didn't cover it was where it outside was. outside of the napkin's jurisdiction. Mm. 
that and every time you watch it, you're like, ooh, it's so close. <laughs> <laughs> it was like watching a fucking thrilling sporting event. I was like, oh, he's almost got it. <laughs> every time the napkin, and there's like a reveal, right? Yeah. Every time the napkin goes up to his face, you're like, is it going to be gone? Is it going to be yes. gone? Is it going to be gone? Is it going to be gone? Oh, it's still there. <laughs> Right now, now it's the Goodwill Hunting moment where you're just like, every time I come up to your mouth, I hope to myself you won't be there. And uh, I missed the moment. I turned to my right. And this is now like two hours in. Well, you've passed the statue. It's gone. It just disappeared. It just disappeared. And I don't know. I don't know what happened because I stopped paying attention. This could have been like uh, five minutes and two hours later. I have no idea what the fuck happened because next time, next thing I know was I started to pay attention to it again. It was gone. <laughs> Sun was down. <laughs> it was like your, it was like your inception totem had disappeared. Yeah, You're like, yeah. am I still in reality? Where did the tomato seed go? Anyway, I wanted to share that. I think that people can relate to it. And I'd love for people to send in their stories. If you can send in a specific story about smudge on your face, we're not talking about shirt yet. That's a whole nother fucking conversation, but smudge on your face in that awkward moment of, do I say something? Do I not say something? And all the hijinks that ensues this, I find to be like fart jokes. Just the greatest things. I want to hear these stories. I want to know these stories. Please send them in to ask Dave at majordomamedia.com. Or you can send them at the Discord channel at where? DCS Pod Talk. One word. DCS dash pod dash talk. That's the channel you want to be in to tell us your, oh, your you nasty. You know what? No one Discord's going to do that anyway. They're just going to put it in some random channel and be like, hey, oh, is this the right place to the channel? Oh, <laughs> 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 well, fuck it. I'm just going to put it here. <laughs> I'll put it anywhere. Mark my territory here. But seriously, everybody, if... It's a guarantee that if you've lived life long enough, you've had this moment. And I want to know how funny it was. Yeah. Or have you lost friendships because you've done something? Or has somebody tried to wipe a mole off your face? (laughs) (laughs) All right. Give us five stars. 